morning. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're with us last week, you know we started a series on the Gospel of Luke. It just so happens that the first couple of chapters of Luke are talking about the Christmas story. And so we have the pleasure of starting a series on the Gospel of Luke while also at the same time talking about the birth of Christ during the Christmas season. So we're really killing two birds with one stone this morning. Uh, we are starting our series on the Gospel of Luke, putting it in its context overall, but also focusing our intent, rightly, I would say, on the birth of Christ. So let's pray that God would help us in that endeavor this morning. Uh, Father, we want to stop here and pause and just ask for your help. Lord, we know that this is an incredibly important passage that we're about to look at, because we know that the birth of Christ is of enormous significance, both historically and theologically. And so this morning, we're praying that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see. We're praying that your spirit would be at work amongst us. Whatever baggage we may bring in this morning, and I'm sure that all of us bring in some, we pray that we'd be able to set that aside here for the next few minutes as we study your word, and that we would be freshly affected by what your word would say to us about the birth of Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us this morning to see this as good news, because it is. And we pray that we would leave here rejoicing you've done in sending your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So during my elementary school years, my best friend was a kid named Brian Goldsmith. Brian and I went to the same school and had many of the same interests. We played on many of the same sports teams. So from the day we started kindergarten, we were fast friends. And because of my friendship with Brian and my growing up years, I spent a fair amount of time at the Goldsmith house. Now, in many ways, the house that the Goldsmiths lived in was pretty unremarkable. It was an older house and fairly large, probably one of the nicer houses in the neighborhood, but there was nothing spectacular about it. By and large, it was just a normal house in a normal neighborhood. But having said that, there was one thing about the house and its setting that made it unique. Probably less than 50 yards from their back door, there was a train track that ran along the entirety of their property line. Now, I'm not talking about a train track that was dormant or rarely used, nor am I talking about a train track that was behind a fence or a wall or otherwise separated from the yard. I'm talking about a busy railroad track that essentially ran straight through the Goldsmith's yard. In fact, when we played, golds or when we played baseball in the Goldsmith's yard, which was often, the train track would be the home run boundary. If you hit it over the railroad track, it was a home run. If not, the ball was still in play, even right up to the edge of the tracks. Now, in retrospect, I'll, I'll say this. Maybe it wasn't the safest thing in the world that our parents let us play sports right next to a busy railroad track. But that was a different era, and I'm happy to report that no one died or lost the limb playing, goldsmiths, playing baseball in the Goldsmith's front yard. And I also have to admit that as much as it was an oddity at first to play so close to a railroad track, eventually we just kind of got used to it. It became normal to have trains rolling as you played in the yard. But as much as we, meaning Brian's friends, became acclimated to the train tracks, there's no doubt that Brian and his family were even more acclimated. And this was especially apparent when it came to something like sleep. When I would spend the night at Brian's house, the trains would often keep me awake in the middle of the night or keep me from falling asleep. Now, as a bit of a parenthetical side note, I'll also mention this too. There's another reason I couldn't sleep at the Goldsmith's house, and it was because of their cat. I'll share that story another time because if there's anything I've learned in my years over ministry, you have to be very careful with cat stories. I can talk about all kinds of crazy stuff on Sunday mornings and barely get a response, but if I talk about cats, the cat people are coming out of the woodwork. In fact, I think I'm still getting some texts from the last time I mentioned a cat in a sermon. So I will not talk about the goldsmith's cat this morning, but I will tell you that I had a hard time sleeping at their house because of the trains. 
Even though our own house was relatively close to a train track, there's just something different about a train being seemingly right outside your window. But for Brian and his family, and this is where the acclimation part comes in, the trains didn't seem to affect their sleep patterns at all. Over time, they just became accustomed to the trains and the noise that came with it, to the point that it did not phase them at all when they heard a train. And in fact, in most cases, I would guess they, they didn't even notice at all. Living in that house, trains passing by became such a normal occurrence that eventually it just faded into the background of their minds. It didn't even register anymore. That's kind of the way life works, isn't it? Something that initially seems strange or gets our attention, something that's noteworthy, maybe in some cases even wonderful, can eventually become unnoticeable because of familiarity. Whether it's a train track in the backyard or mountains off in the distance or technology that has become commonplace or a relationship that we've been in for a long time, when we become overly accustomed to something, we often stop paying attention to it. Familiarity can breed complacency and in some cases, just plain old indifference. And that's relevant to us this morning and relevant to what we're doing in the next couple of weeks because the fact of the matter is that very few sections of Scripture have been studied and analyzed as much as the narratives in Luke 1 and 2 regarding the birth of Jesus Christ. Because the Christmas celebration is such a huge part of our culture, and because the incarnation of Christ is of gigantic theological significance, we tend to spend a lot of time as churches in the month of December studying the narratives that we're going to look at in Luke 1 and 2. And rightfully so. The birth of Jesus Christ is one of the most significant events in all of human history. It's one of the most crucial pieces of the Christian faith. So it would be crazy for us to not at least at some level talk about the birth of Jesus Christ every Christmas season. But the danger, and this is one that we talk about nearly every year, the danger is that we spend so much time in passages like the one we're about to look at today that our familiarity with the story leads to complacency. We stop hearing the trains because we're so used to the tracks in the backyard. So my plea with you this morning is simply this. Let's listen to the story in Luke 1 this morning as if we're hearing it for the first time. It's easy for us to stop hearing the trains because we're used to it. In the same way, it's easy for us to become so familiar with a story like this one that we forget why it was good news to begin with. So that said, let's turn our attention then to Luke 1, 26 to 56. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point. So we read the Word of God beginning in Luke 1, verse 26. The words will be on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But the Word of God says this, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste in the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So here's the reality. There's a lot going on in Luke 1, verses 26 to 56. In fact, one of the commentaries I read this week in preparation for this passage had 60 pages of commentaries on these verses alone. So there's almost an endless amount of things that we could say about Luke 1, 26 to 56. But for the sake of clarity this morning and brevity, I'm guessing no one wants a six-hour sermon. I, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that's your preference. What I want to do this morning is not point out everything that we could say about Luke 1, 26 to 56, but instead to simply point out three things that we learn about Jesus from the narrative regarding his coming birth. And then I want us to think at the end about how we might respond to those truths about Jesus. So three truths about Jesus from the narrative surrounding his coming birth, and then some time of reflection in terms of how we should respond. That's the plan this morning. So first, the three truths, beginning with truth number one. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Luke 1, 26 to 56, is how often the Old Testament is used or referred to in Luke's recounting of the narrative regarding the birth of Jesus Christ or the coming birth of Jesus Christ. And as, as an example, some Bible scholars have estimated that in Mary's song alone, which is found in verses 46 to 55, 13 Old Testament passages are alluded to or referenced. So especially in Mary's song, but throughout the entirety of the passage, the Old Testament plays a huge role in what we read about here in Luke 1. And while these Old Testament passages serve a variety of different purposes, the main purpose for referencing the Old Testament throughout this passage the main reason why Luke does this is he wants us to clearly see that Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied one who would come and save the people from their sin. And this is very apparent from the beginning of the passage. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. In fact, look at the way the passage begins in verses 26 to 33. The announcement from the angel to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So in verses 26 to 33, what we just read, Jesus' lineage in the house of David is mentioned on a couple of occasions. In verse 27, Luke notes that Joseph was of the house of David. This is significant because Joseph was Jesus' legal father. In verse 32, the angel announces that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This language of belonging to the household of David and sitting on the throne of David forever and having a kingdom that will not end is hugely significant because in 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 to 16, a prophecy is made that one day there would be a king who would arise, who would sit on the throne of David forever, one whose reign would never end. And in using the language that they do in Luke 1, both the angel Gabriel and Luke are making the point that Jesus is the forever king. He's the one from the line of David, the one whose kingdom will have no end. In other words, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And this status of Jesus as the promised Messiah is something that's emphasized in other ways in the passage too. Although Luke does not specifically cite Isaiah 7 verse 14, mention of Mary's virgin birth. By the way, it's mentioned three times that she's a virgin. It certainly calls to mind the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, in which Isaiah said that a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Furthermore, the last line of Mary's song, in which she talks about God fulfilling the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, are yet another reminder that Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So just as we saw last week in reference to John the Baptist, Jesus' birth is a part of God's plan of salvation from long ago. But whereas John the Baptist was the forerunner for the Messiah, what we're seeing today is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now in saying that, I think the challenge for us in understanding the significance of Jesus being the promised Messiah is twofold. First, because we're not overly familiar with the Old Testament, we oftentimes miss references that are being made, and thus the idea of Jesus being the promised Messiah just flies over our heads oftentimes. For example, I would guess that most of us, myself included, would not read verses 46 to 55 on our own and come to the conclusion there must be at least 13 Old Testament references here. We just miss it. And because of that, some of the emphasis of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament scripture is lost on us. The second difficulty, though, in grasping the significance of Jesus being the promised Messiah is that on this side of the cross, we tend to take Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures for granted. We think to ourselves, well, of course he fulfilled the scriptures. Of course he was the Messiah. But if you were an Israelite living at the time of the events in Luke 1, you would have been anxiously looking for and awaiting the coming Messiah. You would have been looking for the forever king from the line of David. You would have been looking for the one who would deliver the people from their sins. You would have been looking for the one who fulfilled the promises made to Abraham. And if that's what you're looking for, then Luke's language in chapter 1 would have been astoundingly good news to you. That Jesus is not just a significant baby. He is not just a biological marvel. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the people had been waiting for. So don't let your lack of familiarity with the Old Testament or your placement in history, meaning on this side of the cross, cloud your vision from seeing the enormous significance of the language that's being used here throughout Luke 1. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one, 
The one who is talked about in the Old Testament who would save the people from their sin. So that's the first truth we learn about Jesus and the narrative surrounding his coming birth, that he is the promised Messiah. Secondly, we learn this. Jesus is uniquely supreme. He is uniquely supreme. Now, one of the, another one of the interesting things that Luke does here in chapters 1 and 2 is he sets up this parallel structure in which he ping-pongs back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. He starts by talking about the birth announcement of John the Baptist. And then he talks about the birth announcement of Jesus. Then he comes back to the birth of John the Baptist before he moves on to the birth of Jesus. Back and forth, Luke goes in chapters 1 and 2, alternating between John the Baptist and Jesus. And the reason why I think he does this, why he sets up this parallel structure, is to help us see both the importance of John the Baptist, while at the same time emphasizing the unique supremacy of Jesus. He goes back and forth, helping us see that there are similarities and differences. Consider the birth announcements of both John the Baptist and Jesus, and what's similar and what's different. There are some remarkable similarities between the two birth announcements. In both birth announcements, an angel appears to make the announcement of a coming birth. In both announcements, the angel promises the birth, gives a name to the child, and explains the significance of the child. In both announcements, the angel responds to doubts by giving a sign or instructions. And in that, it's clear that Luke wants us to see there's an interconnectedness between the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. But there are also some major differences between the two parallel accounts. And I think those differences are meant to help us see that Jesus is not like John the Baptist. That he is uniquely supreme in comparison to John. Consider, for example, that John the Baptist is said to be great before the Lord. On the other hand, in verse 32, Jesus is just said to be great. No qualification at all. John the Baptist is born of a barren woman. That's pretty amazing. Jesus is born of a virgin. That's even more incredible. John the Baptist is said to be a prophet of the Most High. Jesus, in verse 32, is described as son of the Most High. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Messiah. But as evidenced by the language that's in the Old Testament, that's throughout chapter 1, Jesus is the Messiah. So as we talked about last week, John the Baptist is an important figure in the history of salvation. But Jesus is the one who brings salvation. He is the Savior. And in setting up the chapter the way that he does with this parallel structure, Luke obviously wants us to see that John the Baptist is really important. But Luke also wants us to see that Jesus Christ is supremely unique. That there is no one like him. As great as John the Baptist is, Jesus easily surpasses the greatness of John. And this unique supremacy of Jesus is even seen in the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth in verses 39 to 45. Look at that interaction in verses 39 to 45. We read this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So even in the womb, the Spirit is working in John the Baptist in such a way that John seems to understand the supremacy of this baby Jesus. Because in the womb, John leaps for joy as the Spirit helps John to understand who Jesus is. Elizabeth, too, seems to understand the significance of Jesus' coming birth also. 
In verse 43, she refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. That's significant, not because of what she's saying about Mary, but because of what she's saying about the one who's in Mary's womb, the mother of my Lord. In other words, she's identifying Jesus as Lord. So both John the Baptist in the womb and his mother Elizabeth grasp that Jesus is uniquely supreme. He's just different. John the Baptist may be great before the Lord, but Jesus is great, period. There is no one like him. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a religious figure. He won't just go on to become a great teacher. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. There is no one like him. And that's not just true then. That's true today, too. He is uniquely supreme. And that's the second truth we learn about Jesus in this narrative surrounding his birth, that he is uniquely supreme. Truth number three, Jesus came to save and rescue the weak and the lowly. Jesus came to save and rescue the weak and the lowly. Look at the content of Mary's song in verses 46 to 55. Verse 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Mary's song, then, she's reflecting on both God's kindness in her own life, but also God's kindness towards others. And specifically, what she's doing here, she's praising God for the work that he's done and is going to do through the Messiah. The verb tenses in verses 51 to 53 are a little bit confusing, but most scholars would say that Mary is actually speaking of future events in those verses that are tied to the Messiah. But because those events are so certain, she speaks of them as if they're in the past. But verb tenses aside, the big theme of Mary's song is very evident, that God exalts the humbled, but humbles the exalted. That those who trust in their own riches, in their own power, their own strength, they will be brought low. But those who fear God and humble themselves before God and acknowledge their own weakness will be exalted. The kingdom of God does not belong to the rich and the powerful. It belongs to the meek and the humble, the poor in spirit who recognize their need for salvation. As we'll see later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus came to save the sick and the hurting. He came to save those who were dead in their sin which is good news for us, is it not? Listen, if you've ever been overwhelmed by your sin, or if you've ever felt like your guilt was too much to bear, which I would say is a normal human occurrence, we should feel overwhelmed by our sin at times. If that's you, Christianity is your religion. Because Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to get everything in order. He demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. He went to the cross and paid the punishment we deserve to pay while we were still messed up. Last week, we sang a new song in our worship service, O Come, All You Unfaithful. I think the lyrics of that song perfectly capture the tone of Mary's song, Listen to this a few of the verses that we sang last week. Oh, come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you're not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Oh, come, bitter and broken. Come, with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. 
Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones, there's no need to run. See what your God has done. I think sometimes we have this attitude that in order to come to church or that in order to come to Jesus, we need to be put together. We need to clean ourselves up so that we can be presentable. But that is not the message of Luke 1, and it's not the message of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. He came for the broken and the hurting. He came to rescue the weak and the lowly. And that's the third truth that we learn about Jesus here in the narrative surrounding his coming birth, that he came to rescue the weak and the lowly. So in summary here, in, in Luke 1, 26 to 56, there's three truths that we see about Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. He's uniquely supreme. He came to rescue the weak and the lowly. But the question I would ask us is simply, how should we respond to these truths? As we've said before, and no doubt we'll say again, the Bible is not just meant to be admired. It's meant to be applied. We're not just meant to collect head knowledge so that we can win future trivia games when we read the Bible. No, the Word of God is meant to transform our thinking and our living too. So I think it's worth asking this question. How should we respond to these truths that we learn in Luke 1, 26 to 56? Now, thankfully, I think the passage itself actually gives us a bit of a roadmap as to how we should respond. And in light of what we read here in Luke 1, 26 to 56, and the response we see from Mary and Elizabeth in these passages, I would suggest that there are also three ways we should respond to the good news about Jesus. So we saw three truths. Now I think there are three responses we see also. First, we should respond to the good news about Jesus with gratitude. We should respond with gratitude. Now, one of the striking things about this portion of Scripture is that both Elizabeth and Mary respond to the good news of the coming birth of Christ with great joy and great gratitude, great thankfulness. Look first at Elizabeth's reaction, verses 41 to 43. We looked at part of this earlier, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Mary, excuse me, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth's first response when she encounters the Messiah is to bless, to bless Mary, but ultimately to bless God and to wonder, what did I do to be a part of this story? You can't help but feel Elizabeth's joy and gratitude as you read her response. Mary's response of gratitude is equally clear. Look at the way her response starts in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now Mary's song in verses 46 to 55 is traditionally referred to as the Magnificat, That title actually comes from the first word of the Latin translation of the song, which simply means to magnify or glorify. And in her song, that's exactly what Mary's doing. She's magnifying God's goodness. She's giving glory to God and praising God because of his blessing upon her and because of his blessing on his people. She's giving thanks, in other words. She's thanking God because he has done great things. So the question I would ask you this morning in light of Elizabeth's response and Mary's response is simply this. Is your heart filled with a similar gratitude for the great things that he has done for you? Or, over time, have you started to lose sight of his great deeds? Have you instead started to focus on maybe the things that you don't have rather than the things that he's given you? I had a bit of a light bulb moment in our recent hospital stay with our son Dawson. 
Now, I won't necessarily get into all the details because I don't think any kid wants their dad to stand up in front of a large group and share intimate medical information. But the long and the short of it is that at one point while we were in the ICU, a nurse came in and asked if Dawson had certain symptoms, specifically if he had cognitive delays as a result of his disease. Her assumption was because almost every kid she'd ever met with his disease had cognitive delays, he must too. But we were able to let her know, actually, no, Dawson does not struggle with that. And in fact, he doesn't have any delays at all. And as she was asking that question, and as we were giving our response, the light bulb came on for me. And the light bulb came on in this way. I realized that in that moment, I realized in that moment that with Dawson's health, I have a tendency to focus on all the things that are wrong rather than to give thanks for all the things that are right. Now, the truth is that Dawson's health is not the greatest. There's a reason why he's in the ICU. But it's also true at the same time that God has been very gracious to my son and provided for him in some spectacular ways. There are things that he doesn't struggle with that, quite frankly, he probably should given his disease. And what convicted me that day in the hospital is that I've not made a habit of regularly expressing gratitude to God for his provision in Dawson's life. Instead of focusing on what he has and what God has done, I instead often focus on what I wish he would have or what I wish God would do. But listen, as a friend and mine, a friend and I were discussing this week, living in that way without gratitude and without thankfulness is a recipe for disaster. If you want to be angry and bitter and grouchy, stop giving thanks. But if on the other hand, you want to be joyful and content and satisfied, which by the way, I hope you do, then I think one of the clearest ways to do that is start here. Make a decision that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be a grateful person. Listen, I don't have statistics to back this up, but experientially I would just say this, the most joyful people I know are also the people who happen to be the most grateful. I think there's a correlation. So I just ask you this morning, what do you have in your life that you can be thankful for? Or to use the language of Mary from verse 49, what great things has God done in your life that you can give him praise? Teenagers, I I know that life can feel overwhelming at times. I know that it can be hard to find your place and your people. It can be hard to fit in. And in that way, it can be easy to focus on maybe what you don't have. But instead of focusing on what you don't have, maybe it would be helpful for you this morning as you try to navigate teenage life to focus on what God has given you. So teenagers, again, I would just ask this question, what great thing has God done for you? Adults, I know that adulting can be hard also. When Tony and I pictured what life would look like in our early 40s, I don't think either of us thought our lives would look the way that it does. And listen, maybe you feel the same way. Maybe your life doesn't look like exactly what you thought it would. But even still, I would ask the question, what can you be thankful for? What great things has God done for you? If you're a Christian, I would suggest that the list should probably start in the same place that Mary's song starts, with an acknowledgement that he has provided a Savior. And because he's provided a Savior, we can always be thankful. If Jesus entered into our world and did so in order to rescue us from our sin, and if he rose from the dead, and if one day he will come again to make things right, then there is always room for gratitude. Indeed, he has done great things. And he's doing great things, and he will do great things in the future. So that's response number one to the good news about Jesus in Luke 1, gratitude. Secondly, I think we should respond to the good news about Jesus with humility. With humility. 
Now, I know over the years, some denominations have tried to make much of Mary and exalt her to the point of making her an object of worship. But that makes no sense of the context of a passage like this one. Mary is noteworthy in this passage, not because of who she is, but because of the one that she's carrying. She's blessed because of the one in her womb, not because she herself is an object of worship. And Mary herself seems to get this. Listen to the way she describes herself at the very beginning of her song. Again, 46 through 49 here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Listen, it would have been easy for Mary to think of herself as a big deal and to become puffed up with pride. After all, she was carrying the Savior. We see this happen all the time with people in our world. Someone becomes famous or successful, and all of a sudden their head can barely fit through the door. But this doesn't happen with Mary. Instead, she starts her song by recognizing her humble estate, and she attributes all of her blessing to the working of her mighty God. We see the same type of humility in Elizabeth. It would have been easy for Elizabeth to make everything about her. After all, she had a pretty amazing story also. But when Mary comes on the scene, Elizabeth doesn't play the me monster game. She doesn't point out to Mary, well, that's great, Mary, that you're having a miraculous baby, but just know I am too. Look at me, Mary. I'm a big deal also. She doesn't do that at all, does she? Instead, she simply gives blessing to God, and she actually wonders, why would I be allowed to be a part of this? Both Elizabeth and Mary then had reason to boast. Instead, both were humble and focused on pointing to Jesus. And their response, I think, challenges us to think about the way we respond to things. Namely, are we focused on ourselves and what we bring to the table and what we want? Or are we focused on pointing to Jesus and reflecting on the grace that we've received? Again, The most spiritually people I know, or most spiritually mature people I know, are also some of the most humble people I know. That, too, is not a coincidence. If we understand our lowly estate apart from Christ, and if we understand that every good gift comes from above, and if we understand it's only by grace we've been saved, there is no room for pride. There's only humility. The Lord looked on our humble estate and showed us favor, too. Praise be to God. So that's the second response that we see here in Luke 1, humility. Response number three, we should respond to the good news about Jesus with obedience. With obedience. Look again here at verses 34 to 37. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now here's the thing. Because we are familiar with the Christmas story, we tend to underestimate the difficulty of some of the details and what it might have meant meant for the people who were involved in the story. For example, the virgin birth is kind of a big deal here. Now I have no intention of getting into a biology lesson this morning, If I think I would get a letter about cats, I think a biology lesson would probably get me a lot more letters. All right, so I have no intention to get there, but I will just say this. What Mary is being told here in verses 35 to 37 is not physically possible. But it ends up being possible only because God is involved. 
The Holy Spirit works outside the parameters of normal human biology and allows Mary to conceive a child. And this is of huge theological significance. The virgin birth matters because Jesus being born of the Holy Spirit and not of man means that Jesus did not inherit the sinful nature of Adam, which means that he was able to be sinless and thus go to the cross as our perfect sacrifice. But setting that theological discussion aside, what I want you to think about this morning is that the virgin birth had the potential to make Mary's life very difficult. This probably will not surprise you, but even in Mary's day and age, people would have been skeptical of a virgin birth. So the angel's announcement to Mary puts her in a tough situation with her betrothed, Joseph. We actually see this in in the Gospel of Matthew. It opens her up to the charge of sexual morality and generally speaking makes her an object of ridicule. But I want you to listen to how Mary responds to this news in verse 38. Look at what she says in response to all this news about being born or being, uh, having a virgin birth and all that comes with it. Verse 38, Mary says this. And Mary said, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's response is not, well, this is going to make my life quite a bit more difficult, so is there another way to do this? No, her response is simply, I'm a servant, a bondservant, a slave even of the Lord. Let it be according to his word. In other words, she submits and obeys. Hear this. If Jesus is who Luke 1 says he is, the promised Messiah, the uniquely supreme one, the Son of God and Savior of the world, there is only one fitting response to trust and obey, to worship. By using the language of servant, Mary is communicating her intent. I will obey. And I would just say this, our attitude should be the same. We should respond to the Christmas story, not just by putting up trees or lights, but by obeying the king. Listen, if you're living in active disobedience right now to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you this morning to repent and to adopt the mindset of Mary. I am a servant of the Lord. So listen, church, I know that the story of Jesus' birth can be so familiar that eventually it just becomes like trains in the background. Eventually we tune it out. But let me encourage you this morning to see the story with fresh eyes and remember, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is uniquely supreme and he came to rescue the weak and the lowly. And because that's true, we should respond with gratitude, we should respond with humility, and we should respond in obedience. After all, if Jesus is the Savior King who came to rescue us from our sin, then he is worthy of our worship, and he is worth living for. Let's pray. Father, we know this is a story that we've heard a thousand times. And yet, again, as we talked about at the beginning, we want to hear it this morning with fresh eyes or with fresh ears to hear it and see it with fresh eyes. God, we want to be reminded of who Jesus is, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is uniquely supreme, that he came to rescue the weak and the lowly. And we want to respond to that accordingly with gratitude and thankfulness, with humility and with obedience. So God, please help us to see the good news and help us to respond accordingly this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.